One pastor said it took his congregation, him and his congregation, three years to go through the entire Bible. I think we're on the course of four years, but that's okay. Maybe Jesus will come in that time. One thing about the book of Joshua, of all the books in the scriptures that I think warrant an introduction in order to get the full meaning of that book, I would think it would be Joshua. And you know, one of my goals that I have when I'm teaching a passage in the Bible I don't need anyone to cheer me on. I don't need anyone to say wow or amen. But all I ever intended is that we will walk away understanding the passage a little better. The meat of that passage. And then perhaps for the rest of our lives, no matter where we find ourselves, the passage will be a friend to us as we read it in our own devotional time. That we can turn to that passage and say, I know what that passage means. I know why it's in the Bible. And I know what it is intended to communicate to me. If we can do those things, we're way ahead of the games of a lot of people. And so I think the book of Joshua, in order for us to have that kind of place, it to have that kind of place in our lives, it requires a little introduction. Is Joshua among the prophets? And what I mean by this, we usually put Joshua among the historical books, which is in term, it designates the books from Joshua through Second Chronicles. That's in our English Bible. But the Jewish tradition was probably closer to the truth when it dubs Joshua, Second Kings, along with the former prophets. It, it's vital in how we read the Bible. And you may ask, what's the difference? Does it matter whether we look at on Joshua as a historical? Or as a prophetical book, I think it does. Because it has to do with the way some people think of history. Now, I'm a history buff. I love history. But a lot of people don't like history. They say it's dry. It's just what has happened in the past. And especially when it comes to biblical history. But what happens when we look at Joshua as primarily prophecy rather than history, and what is the difference between former prophets and a historical book, it is like the difference between, between preaching and a world history book. It's a great difference because the prophecy of Joshua means it's, it's there to convict us. Not merely to inform, it's there to comfort, not merely to just enlighten us. The book of Joshua is preaching material. 
that comes straight from the heart of God. It's historical narrative. And so we need to see clearly that history in the Old Testament is a declaration from God about God. He's speaking to us. So as we go through this book, try to keep asking yourself this question. What is the writer preaching about when he tells me this account? He's not telling us this account to inform us, although it does that, but he has a message to proclaim a God to impress upon us. Now, we know the first five books of the Bible is known as the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law. The Old Testament is also called typical history because it's a record about the children of Israel. But it's also what I want you to understand is pictures and its types for us. As we look at all of those physical things that they went through, all of those physical battles and experiences they went through, the Bible teaches that it speaks something spiritual in the believer's life. For instance, when we read about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, then as they cross the Jordan River, all of these things are intended to produce something spiritual in our lives as believers. So the Old Testament is a picture of a New Testament truth or principle. Jesus says this, remember, as he was speaking to the religious leaders concerning the Old Testament, because that's all they had. You search the scriptures for in them, looking at the Old Testament, in them, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So anytime, anytime you do a Bible study on the Old Testament, your mindset should be, I don't want to leave this section of Scripture until I have brought it to its highest heights in terms of its application. We don't want to do that until we bring that passage of Old Testament Scripture to Jesus Christ and what that's passage of scripture is speaking about him and the world that we live in. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, all these things happen to them as examples, Old Testament scriptures, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So it's all intended once again to speak something spiritual to us about Jesus himself, about our personal, growing, hopefully, relationship with him. So Egypt is a picture of the world. The children of Israel, remember, they were in bondage in Egypt. They were in physical bondage in Egypt. But that whole experience speaks of bondage that all of us are born into in this world, the greater bondage of sin. Then God, remember his redemption plan that came through Moses. 
that speaks of a picture of salvation. God has saved us as believers out of this world. We may be in it, but we shouldn't be of it. He's broken the bondage of sin from our lives. But remember, Pharaoh, he rose up and, and, and he, he, he tried to take down the children of Israel and Moses. He resisted that. The same way the enemy, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, Satan rises up and tries to keep us in bondage. But he shouldn't be able to do that. So Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Then the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture, hear me right, of water baptism. And we know, we've, I've said this many of times, water baptism doesn't save you. It's just the outward sign of an inward reality. When we are born again, when we are sa- saved, we are placed in the body of Christ, if it took, if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ. And then there's the wilderness wondering, what the book of Joshua is all about. They wondered for 40 years at Kadesh Barnea when, when, when Moses sent those 12 spies out and only two, Caleb and Joshua, came back with a good report. And so because the children of Israel believed the 10, they had a death march in the wilderness for 38 years. And what that picture or that type shows us, it's a picture of the Christian who's gone through the Red Sea, born again. They're out of Egypt, but they never enter into the promised land. The promises, all of the great and precious promises that God has for us. For whatever reason, they never walk by faith into those promises that are found in the Bible. Whether it was because of unbelief, whether it was because of carnality, whether it was because of lukewarmness, whatever it is, they decided, be careful, I'm happy enough just to be out of the world. I'm on my way to heaven But in terms of the promises of God and possessing them and every day being conformed to a greater measure to the image of Christ, that's not something I'm interested in. I'm okay. But I'm here to tell you there's a journey after we are born again. Now, we all, if we're honest, have our wilderness wonderings at times. As I was thinking about this wilderness wondering, I thought about Ephesians chapter 2.10. The reason I put it here, I'll let you know. It says this, for we, the believer, are his workmanship, that word poema. It's not an essay, something of structure, but it's poetry. He's given us a walk after he saved us to walk in that's going to be pleasing to him edifying and pleasing to us if we stay there. So he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Listen, and every time we step out of the will of God and his plans for us, what do we do? We begin to wonder in the wilderness until we get right back into the road he wants us to be in. There's a lesson to be learned in the wilderness. And as Christians, we are to live and walk in the promises of God, you guys. You know, we don't live on explanations. We all like that. Lord, why is this and why is that? But the truth of the matter is, we should live on the promises of God. We've been given once again great and precious promises in the scriptures. We have these things as promises to us, and they all correspond to Canaan. And this land is called the promised land, based once again upon God's promises all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He says this to Abram. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And you know what? If you know anything about God, he keeps his promises. He has promised every believer victory, but he hasn't promised us victory without a battle. See, that's the part we don't like. We don't like doing the battling. He wants us to subdue this land. That's what I see. When he speaks of the promised land, I always take that, is this right here? Will I subdue it? Will I walk in the spirit of God? Will I do the things he's called me to do? Because he's given me everything for life and godliness. This is the promised land, but those promises goes along with it. I need to subdue it and I need to occupy it because of all of the promises he's given me. And you know, much of the New Testament, it speaks of, of the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. And it talks about wrestling with the enemy and the pulling down of strongholds. We must get in our minds that we live in a battlefield. That's what we live in. Satan can throw up all of the mirages he wants, but this is a battlefield. And once we get that in our hearts, we will be prepared for battle. Paul says this, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, strongholds of the mind, strongholds of maybe you were raised a certain way and you were browbeaten and beat down and parents or spouses said things to you. And you have all of those strongholds. But God tells us who we are. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he has a plan for your life. He has great things for us. But we must go in and occupy the land. We are to enter into those things. Certainly, they're dependent on our divine leader. He gives us grace to do those things. 
And we enter into those things by faith, not by the law. The law couldn't do it. We don't deserve them. We don't earn them. They are freely given to us, promised to us through Christ's completed work on the cross of Calvary. Here's sort of an oxymoron, though, because it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent. The, the, the better word is let us labor. Let us therefore labor to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Once again, those things, they, they, they seem contradictory. But what he's saying, if you depend on me and you yield to me, every promise that I've promised you, you can have. So he says, let us therefore labor to enter that rest. And we know that the world, the flesh, and Satan, they're always pulling at us. It's like being in a river and that undertow. We're always having to fight that. We're always swimming upstream, but swim we must. We must if we want these promises. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have a spiritual leader. We have a promised land. We have, I was thinking about this, a guaranteed. The victory is guaranteed. You know, I was watching football yesterday after I had studied. But anyway, I was watching. And I'm seeing all, most of the games were blowouts. But as I was thinking about this scripture, I said, if I knew I was going to win the game, whether I was down 49 to zero, God has said, you're going to win the game. How many of us would give up? But if you knew the Lord had spoke and said, no matter what, after the end of these four quarters, you're going to be on top. Would you fight? That's what he says here. No matter what we have to go through down here, he said, you're going to win. All of these great and precious promises is yours if you will continue to fight and not just, well, this is all I want. I'm satisfied with this. My life is passable. I might not be a holy roller, but I'm a believer. I hear the Father says, be holy because I am holy. Don't just settle at a level. Continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the promises will come. We have that divine enablement, that Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that we can claim and have these promises of God. You know, it's good to have a land. And that's what the Jews have. They will have all of that land like God says. But what about a life? A life of great and precious promises. A victorious Christian life. That means come hell or high water, God has placed me there 
and I'm still living above the wave. Those promises are there for me. Joshua also is a type of Jesus Christ. His name originally Hoshea. Hoshea means salvation. He gets with Moses. That's good to know his name is salvation. But Moses says this is not enough. Moses changes his name to Yahoshua. God is salvation. Moses, remember, he represented the law. And so Moses, because of his disobedience, the one mistake that we know about that Moses made, he didn't get to go into the promised land, but he could have never went in because, once again, he represents the law, and the law cannot get us into the promised land. Only Joshua could do that. Just as no one could ever enter into the promises of God by keeping the law, it could only occur through faith in Jesus Christ. We're born again, therefore the great and precious promises are ours. Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18 tells us, And this I say, the law which was 430 years later, the promise came first, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in, in Christ, notice it says, that it should make the promise of no effect. The law couldn't kick it to the curb. That's what he says. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The writer of Hebrews will tell us that just as Joshua did something that Moses could not do, Jesus Christ will do something that Joshua could not do. Joshua takes them into the land, but my Bible tells me in the book of Hebrews, there's a greater rest. There's a peace that Jesus Christ gives us that Joshua could never give us. Jesus is the true Joshua. Once again, Joshua is a type. He's a picture of the one who is coming, Jesus Christ. I like the real thing. It's okay to have a picture of my wife, but I'd rather have my wife. That's what he's saying. That's the reality. We have the reality in Jesus Christ. Joshua could never bring us into the richness that Christ has brought us into. And the last thing before we get started, the promised land, and many people think this, is a picture of heaven, but it's not. I don't think, well, I know by my Bible, when we make it to heaven, there won't be giants to defeat. There won't be failures anymore in heaven. There won't be deception in heaven, not by God, but by the Gibeonites that they're going to have to, they will fall short of. So once again, the promised land is about claiming and possessing and occupying all of the promises that God has promised us in his word. They are ours as we grow in Christ's likeness. 
there will be opposition. We've been living long enough as believers to know that. We will face obstacles, but the promises are ours. Now, I hope you don't think this introduction was unnecessary or or unimportant because it is. Because as we go through the book of Joshua week by week, I will be building on these pictures and on these types of what Joshua is speaking to spiritually for us. Chapter 1, Joshua. No applause, we're there. After the death of Moses, which really connects us with Deuteronomy 38. Remember, they had mourned for 30 days for Moses. For 30 days. They thought their lives were over with. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the highest title any believer could ever have. The servant of the Lord. Enter into the joy of the Lord, thou good and faithful servant. Joshua won't get that title until the end of his book. It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, in order to appreciate this reference to Moses' death, we must remember what the Pentateuch and the tradition of the Pentateuch says about the greatness of this man, Moses. I've, I've had talked with a lot of people. Who, who is the greatest uh, uh, individual in the scriptures. Moses' name always comes up. Abraham's name comes up. We know we have to throw in Paul. Moses, a great man of God. Remember, it tells us in Exodus chapter 32 through 34, Israel stood one inch from her covenant death. Why? Because as Moses was going up on Mount Sinai, and they waited for him. They says, what has happened to Moses? Let's make a golden calf. And that's what they did, and they began to worship that. So remember, Moses comes down, grinds up the golden calf, makes the children of Israel, drinks it. What does he do next? He takes his tent the tabernacle that was in the center of Israel, and he moves it on the outside, the outskirts, telling me that the only one that was in covenant at this time with Jehovah God was Moses. It says this in Exodus 33, 7 through 11. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. 
All the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses, how? Pay to pay, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, because Joshua is getting trained in ignorance. He doesn't even know he's getting trained. All Joshua knows, I'm serving Moses. Moses knows the Lord. I want to know the Lord better. So whatever you want me to do, Moses, whether it's clean toilets, whether it's sweep floors, whether it's put up tables, I'm training in ignorance. But God sees and God is chiseling on Joshua because he knows what's coming down the pipe. Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. This is the implication of the context here. Moses is Israel's mediator, attached, and he t- attaches their destiny to his. Because remember, when, God, when Moses goes back up to Sinai, God says, my wrath will consume you. Moses, let me consume them, and I'll make a great nation out of you. But God knows he has the right man. If it was PV, I would say, hmm, that's not bad. I might do that. Let's do it, God. (laughs) No, 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 no. God has the right man. And this is what he says in Exodus 32, 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, here it is, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? They're not my people, they're your people, whom you have brought out of the land with great power and with the mighty hand. God says, you're right, I will go, and my presence will be with you. Moses intercedes, and God relents. Now, we have to remember, unlike other prophets in general, Moses, he received revelation from God like no other prophet has ever. Remember, boy, they gave Moses a hard time as I think of the Scriptures. Remember when Miriam and Aaron, they got upset because Moses had married the Ethiopian woman? Numbers tells us this, chapters 12. After God says, I can imagine, the cloud comes right to the tabernacle, the tent of Moses' door, and says, go get Aaron and Miriam and bring them here right now. Remember what Moses does? He begins to intercede because he knows there's trouble now. He begins to pray. He falls on his face, and he begins to intercede for people who've been backbiting, been gossiping, been doing all of those things. Moses falls on his knees and says, hey, Lord, be merciful to them. But when they show up, it says this, hear now my words. A little chastening here. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in visions. I speak to him in a dream. Not so my servant Moses. He's a different character. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly. 
and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord, the similitude. I mean, he is intimate with him. And then he asks the question, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 34, three verses down tells us this. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. There was no one like Moses till the greater than Moses came, Jesus Christ. And now Moses is dead. You can imagine the dismay in the camp with two to three million of people. We expected it. We were informed of it. God had told him. And we were prepared for it. What do you do when the servant of God dies and a raging river lies between you and the land you are about to inherit? What do you have left when everything the first five books of the Bible have been preparing you end in death. It's against this backdrop of the death of Moses, the incomparable Moses, that the Holy Spirit sets the continuity, the faithfulness, the all-omnipotent power of God in our sight. What will they do? He says, Moses, my servant, is dead, so you must wait? No. So you must weep? No. Now, therefore, arise. That's the God I serve. Moses may die. God promises lives on. There is the passing of an era, yet the endurance of the promise of God. Yahweh's faithfulness does not hinge on the achievements of men. I've seen many great pastors and teachers give up the ghost, enter into the kingdom of God. What are we going to do? Billy Graham is gone. Chuck Smith is gone. Wigglesworth is gone. God's word is still there. My dad is gone. He was the patriarch. We all leaned on him. What will we do now? The promises of God is sure. There may be gifted men, but God is the agent behind all of them. He says, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel, We have to understand that the Jordan River is at flood state stage at this time. I've never been to Israel. I've heard a lot of people teach on it and seen pictures of Israel. They said, if you go to Israel in the spring looking for the mighty Jordan, you will only see the muddy Jordan. 
And now, but we have to get the picture and the setting in this time because anyone who would know anything about the Jordan River, they knew at flood stage, this thing was massive. They said it would usually go from 17 to 15 feet wide, but in the flood stage, and remember, it would go from the, the Sea of Galilee going down. The Yarnock River would jump in there, pushing everything down, going to the Dead Sea, that drop of often sea level between Mount Hermon and Mount Arbol. They said the, 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 the least footage of that river at flood stage would be about 50 feet. Think about taking two steps you're drowning. So any and everyone knew that this was a formidable task that God was asking him to do. It took faith. God tells him, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. As I said to Moses, past tense, it's already yours. It belongs to you. But this is the part. We must possess it. First Thessalonians 4, 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. All of these promises belong to every single believer in Jesus Christ. No matter how obscure you think you may be, no matter how powerless you think you may be, or how overlooked you may think you are in the world, this spiritual life belongs to you, and you can have as much of it, as much of this spiritual life on this side of heaven. We can have all of these promises but we must be willing to claim and possess them. He says in verse four, from the wilderness, this is on the south side, and this Lebanon, the mountain range to the north, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's on the east, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, the Mediterranean shall be your territory. One scholar said it was about 300 square miles. They never occupied this. The closest they came to occupying all of these promises was when David and Solomon reigned. My question to you guys, why didn't they possess it? It's yours. Go get it. Why didn't they possess it? They began to say I'm okay. I'm okay with where I am. This is all of the Christ-likeness I want. This is all of the promises I want. I don't want to be that committed to Christ. So I'll just stop right here. Once again, I'm passable. So we don't drive out selfishness. We don't drive out pride. We don't drive out anger and pornography and all of those things that we continue to battle with and keep us downcast. And the reason we are downcast, 
Because we know deep down in our beings that we can have the victory. But we don't. It's not worth the aggravation of seeking him early. It's not worth the discipline of prayer. I've got to go to work. I have more fun things to do. Work out. Go shopping. We make all of those excuses and we stop growing in the promises. We should always be growing in Christ's likeness. That's what Joshua, the book of Joshua, is all about. He says in verse 5, no man, this is what God is saying. We know he does not lie. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life as I was with Moses. Oh, I know he felt good when he heard this. So I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Literally, he says, I will not let you sink. I will not. I'm experienced with this. I hope Pastor Brian don't mind. But we went on vacation with De- to Destin with them. And I was out in the water where I shouldn't have been. And I see Brian swim out and he's standing up. He's way out there, in my opinion. And he says, look, there's a sandbar. I can stand up. And I'm about 15 feet away. I said, here I come, Brian. I'm going to go too. I'm trying to swim. You know, black people can't swim now. I'm just joking. I can swim, but I, I, I wasn't in shape to do it. So I'm swimming and I get about halfway there. And Brian must have been watching just like God. He, he just hovers over, over us and watches. This is exactly what I said because I was tired. The wave was just hitting me. I said, come get me. Ask him. I said, come get me. I don't know if I could put my hands up, but he was watching. I guess he could see the fear in my eyes. He didn't say a word. He swam past me, and I'm thinking, what is he doing? And he comes back and grabs me. He said, just pedal your feet, and he took me back where I could stand up. That's what God means. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter if it's topsy-turvy and we can't understand We know God is saying, I will never allow you to sink. I'm faithful. Though the battle may be hard, God doesn't say there won't be any battles, but he won't fail us. He will never forsake us. What do we count Jesus for in our lives? That's the question. When he calls us to do things and we say, this is beyond me, Lord, I can't do it. God says, right here, the promise might be overwhelming. The task might be overwhelming. But remember who's with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, we've heard that. And sometimes it just runs across our heart. But for the person who's in this room, who's going through something that's watching online, and they think they have no hope, it means something totally different. God is saying, I know you've been let down before. I know you've been disappointed in the past. 
by your so-called friends or even your family. But don't impose them on me. I'm totally different. And when I say I will never allow you to sink, you can take it to the bank. I will never do that. He says in verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Notice Joshua, he's not told to grit his teeth and muster up courage on his own. He's told to be strong in the promises of the Lord. Only because he knows God is with him that he can be courage. Look at verse 9 real quick. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And it's not because God prefers leaders that are positive thinkers. I'm not a positive thinker. I, I call myself a realist. We might hear, and we might hear this, and we might say, okay, God, you will do this for Joshua, because Joshua, oh, wow, he's a godly man. He had a large task. But will you do it for the average Janice or Joe? Will you do it for me? God says, I knew you were going to ask that. Yes, I'll do it for you. He says this in Hebrews chapter 13, 5 through 6. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content, Victor, with such things as you have for he himself has says, and then he quotes Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is passed over also in the New Testament. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The same promises here is made to each and every believer in Jesus Christ. You know, as I was thinking of this, I began to think of David. All of the things he had went through, all of his great victories, and all of his failures. And at the end of his life, he, he writes, this, he pins this psalm, Psalms 18.35. Notice what he says. You have also given me the shield of my salvation that Fights off the enemy's arrows. You're not this. You're not that. You drop the ball here. You drop the ball there. And you think the Lord loves you. We need that shield of salvation. Then he says, your right hand, that right hand of authority has held me up. But this is the key. He says, your gentleness has made me great. We all know that God is a God of power. He laid out the heavens with his voice. His power is unimaginable. But David says, it's his gentleness. The way he handles me when I stumble and when I fall and when I think nobody else loves or cares for me and nobody understands what I'm going through. David understood. And David says, he would come and lift me up. And encourage me, a God of power. It's his gentleness that has made me great. A bruised reed or a smoking flax. The Bible says Jesus will not 
despise. He will encourage us. He will give us the grace to continue in his ways. Be strong and of good courage to this people. You shall divide as an inheritance. Joshua, you're going across. You're going to defeat these enemies, and you will be one of those who divide the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. It's as good as done. I think when I'm reading the scriptures, I think of questions and why, how come you didn't do it this way or that way? And as I'm reading this, my first question to God would be, okay, since you're a God of power and you can just speak the word and it will happen, how come you just didn't do that? Why do we have to go in and do the battling? When you could have just spoke the word and it would have happened. He could have did it vastly different. But he goes on to say in the book of Judges, he also says, I think he says in uh, 1 Kings, he says, I will not drive out the enemies before you in one day. He says, I will drive them out little by little because if I drive them out in one day, I know you guys, you will say, I did it. We got the victory. So he does it step by step. You know, I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes when I hear people say this, I'm envious. And then I said, Lord, why didn't you, why didn't you do that for me? I mean, because when I was born again, some things the Lord just took away right, right away. Cursing and drinking and all those things, getting drunk, all those things. And some things, it's a daily battle. Lord, give me grace. Give me grace. And it's a work in progress. That's what Joshua is speaking of here. God is a God of wisdom. He says he will drive these enemies out, the parasites, the the Hittites, the Canaanites, little by little. What he's wanting us to understand and learn in all of our victories, they are secondary victories. They are secondary victories. Remember when they go down to defeat Achan at Ai, Joshua and his leaders with the the Gibeonites, Every time they stumble and fall, they forget to do the primary thing. The primary victories comes in the quietness of my room with my Bible and being in prayer, studying, reading it, letting the Lord speak to me. And then when I have victories, They manifest, but they're secondary victories. That's the key. The key is not going out battling. Nothing is done. I say this all the time when we go to prayer meeting, except by prayer. You want these great and precious promises, pray and seek the Lord and be in the word. They don't happen by osmosis. They don't happen overnight. Just I'm close to the Bible. No, we must be in the word. We must be in prayer. We must be in fellowship with the Lord. And then the secondary victories will come. And that's what 
Joshua is going to teach us here. He says, only, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe. Now, we're going to have here to do in verse 8. He will say to do also here in verse 7. All through this, he's going to challenge Joshua. I'm giving you my word, not so that you can do mental gymnastics with it, not so that you can debate theology with it, not so that you can debate are you Arminius or Calvinist with it. I'm giving you my word so you can do it. That's the key to blessings is doing the word of God. He says that here, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. How many of us know God means what he says? He doesn't say things arbitrarily to say things just to say it, just to hear himself talk. He says it because he knows what's going to bring a blessing to us if we do it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate. The word is mutter. We like to say chew the cud, regurgitate it, read it again, think about it. Meditate in it day and night. He doesn't say pick your word up every three days, twice a month. Every six months, he says, meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do it. So what it tells me, if I'm not in it, there's a greater chance that I won't do it. That you may observe to do it according to all that is written in it. Public, hear me well, in private schools. Have your kids for eight hours a day at least. Now, I hope and pray that they're not teaching critical race theory or gender fluidity. I hope they're teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's what I'm hoping. But a lot of time is spent on brainwashing, brainwashing our kids and shaping their brains to think secularly more than sacredly. And even if your kids attend Christian schools, you need to know that what they are teaching is accurate. Now, just think, add four more years of those liberal universities. These are just some of the Canaanites and the parasites that we as believers must deal with. We must make sure that our students are combating these attempts of indoctrination with the word of God. If not, do you expect them to come out of the universities and still be in church and still follow the Lord? The only way that will happen, they've been combating it with the word of God. God, knowing that, God says, even if you go to the universities, even if you go to the public schools, meditate on my word, especially 
those public schools. Make sure you're ingrained in the word of God. Because before you know it, I've seen it happen. Those kids that I had in youth group and middle school group. What? They're doing what? They believe what? The schools, especially the public schools, they're going to do their job. Parents, we must do ours. The body of Christ, we must do ours. Well, you have Bible study on Wednesdays. That's good and well. Yeah, you have Bible study on Sunday. We need to be having Bible study at home. We need to be having Bible study with ourselves. That world has something for us. God knowing this. Don't get upset with me. God knowing this. I didn't say it. God said it. He said, meditate on this word. Because if you do, and if you're in it, you can combat the falsehoods and the evil being called good. You will say, hey, that's rubbish. Who do they believe would think that? Well, I'm here to tell you, the person who is not a believer and the believer who is not in his word just might believe that. We're in a battlefield. Joshua and the crew, the two to three million people are crossing over Jordan and they will have to go and do battle. They don't go in there and kick back and say, hey, I'm going to watch the football game until the Lord calls me home. No, there's a battle there. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Constant and careful absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience. Lack of study brings about disobedience. Verse 9, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In all of our struggles, hear me, in all of our battles, that is always the key to alleviate fear. What is that? To be conscious of God is with us. David put it this way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He doesn't say my finances are good, therefore I will not fear. He does not say my family is all right, so I will not fear. He says God is with me. I will not fear. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days, you will cross over this Jordan to go into the, to go in to possess the land, which the Lord, your God is giving you to possess. He gathers his leaders together. He says, go through the camp, the officers, two to three million people and get ready. Gather your beef jerky, gather your pita bread, put it in your backpack because by this time the manna has stopped. The, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day has stopped. And so as the King James says, they get their vittles together and they're ready. What amazes me, and I'm about to close, Mo, uh, Joshua did not say, go through the camp 
and find all of the engineers that you can find. And we're going to build this big pontoon bridge or we're going to build rafts and barges and all these things. He didn't say that. He says, stock up your food because we we cross in this Jordan. Now, I don't know how we're going to cross it, but you know what? I'm simple. I don't have to know. God knows. That's walking by faith. I don't have to know everything. The worship team can come up. All I need to know is that my God is a powerful God and that he dotes over me. And the reason he dotes over me is because he loves me and he has great and precious promises for every one of his children. If we would yield to the power of the Holy Spirit, if we would gird up the minds of our loins and walk with him, he will not fail. He will never let one of his children sink. If I know I'm going to win the game, he's told me I'm losing 100 to nothing. Keep battling because he's told us the victory is ours. Let's pray. Father, you know, I hear so many people say I I struggle with this and I struggle with that. And I understand those things. But I know the enemy wants us to be defeated. But my next question is, are we in your word? Are we in prayer? Are we seeking your face? Because you're not a God that will lie. And when you say these great and precious promises are ours, you mean it. But there are some things we're called to do. Trust you and lean not to our own understanding. There are some things you've called us to do. Being in your word day and night. Trusting in your word, claiming and possessing the promises of God. Understand it's not going to be at one time. We may spend a lifetime possessing these promises, but we will be living while we're spending that lifetime of possessing. We will be living a victorious Christian life. And that brings glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father... Let that sink into our hearts as we go through this book of Joshua. Everything that you have called us to is ours. If we would only trust you and lean not to our own understanding. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts. May we allow the Holy Spirit to let it ruminate and and, and just simmer in our hearts and that we will be obedient to it. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.